Welcome to our first live episode of the Life in Digital podcast. We're kicking things off with our IR35 Remove the Risk webinar. IR35 legislation is changing on the 6th of April 2021. Listen to our live webinar recorded on the 17th of February, where Sphere were joined by the experts at Kingsbridge on how to remove the risk of IR35 from your business. We'll be hosting live industry events throughout the year and we'll share these recordings via our Life in Digital podcast. I hope you will enjoy. Okay, hopefully that's everyone in. Um, hi, everyone, and um, welcome to our IR35 webinar. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the Finance Director at Sphere. And with me today, I have a couple of experts from Kingsbridge and Ryan and Ollie, uh, who are going to talk to us more about IR35. So today we're going to run through uh, a little bit about the legislation and the upcoming changes, hopefully giving you some good insights and getting you all feeling prepared for it. Ryan's going to go over a quick presentation and then we're going to open up to a Q&A. So uh, over to you, Ryan. Thank you very much, Ben. Um, and yes, I guess, um, firstly, good afternoon. Um, you know, thank you very much for obviously joining this session. Appreciate that I-35 is not necessarily the most interesting of subject, but it is something that obviously everybody in the contracting world is, is, is going to have to face up to and actually deal with. Um, so my name's Ryan. I work here at Kingsbridge. Uh, more specifically, I work within the I-35 team here at Kingsbridge. Um, and what our team does here at Kingsbridge is effectively everything in, re in regards to I-35, you know, ranging from relatively straightforward sessions like this, um, right the way up to actually defending uh, contractors who have inquiries from HMRC. So the, the purpose of this then is to uh, really give you a bit of an understanding as to what I-35 is, maybe run through some of the uh, more challenging aspects of the legislation before obviously then taking any questions that you might have. So um, I think what we'll do then is just jump straight into the uh, first slide, uh, which Ollie's uh, looking after those for me. Thank you, Ollie. Uh, so the, the starting point here then is, is, is just that, it's, it's understanding what IR35 actually is. And there's often this misconception that what's coming in this April is something completely brand new. Uh, well, that's not actually the case. Um, IR35 has been around for the last 21 years. It was actually first introduced in the year 2000, and it was designed at the time to tackle the concern that the government had that it was possible, as I've put on the screen here, it was possible for someone to leave work as an employee on a Friday only to simply return the following Monday to do pretty much exactly the same job. However, they were just engaged uh, differently. So rather than being engaged as an employee, this person would be engaged as a consultant and therefore they would pay a substantially reduced tax and national insurance figure. Now, because of the rules in this particular area of tax, so tax around self-employed, um, employees were able to um, basically convert their status from an employee to that of a limited company or a partnership really, really easily. And they could do that for intensive purposes pretty much overnight if they had a, a fairly good accountant. The problem, uh, therefore, um, that the inland revenue, as it was known at the time, uh, faced was that these employees come contractors were reducing the amount of tax that they paid. Um, most contractors, uh, if not all contractors, will operate in a tax efficient way by simply giving themselves an extremely low um, kind of yearly salary and they'll take the majority of their income via a dividend payment. 
Uh, and obviously dividend payments attract little to absolutely no NIC whatsoever. Um, so that created this problem for HMRC that, you know, these employees that, that were doing this were gaining a advantage. However, they were just simply acting like normal employees would under the guise of a limited company. Um, so that gave birth to IR35, that gave birth to the rules, um, and it gave birth to the term that HMRC like to call disguised employees. Um, so IR35 is really concerning itself with individuals who would be classified as a disguised employee. Uh, next slide, please, Ali. So when we're looking at um, when IR35 actually applies, um, so this is in circumstances where we say that somebody is perhaps inside of IR35 or they are caught by the rules. Um, what we're really saying is, is that, you know, IR35 as a rule set will apply if a worker is providing their services to a end client via their own intermediary. Uh, so that intermediary for this example would be perhaps the limited company contractor or the, the actual limited company that they're using as a vehicle to, to work into that end client's business. But had it not been for that limited company, so had that limited company between the worker and the end client not have existed at all, had it completely never been there, um, would that contractor's engagement just simply look, feel, and, and be no different to that of a normal employee? So would, would the individual just be a normal employee and be classed as a normal employee if that limited company between the um, two parties had not existed? If the answer to that question is fundamentally yes, they would simply act, behave, look, you know, feel like an employee and be actually classified as a normal employee, then in those circumstances, you would say that IR35 applies. If, on the other hand, you say, well, no, actually, the, the contractor doesn't, you know, would not be classed as an employee, simply, you know, they, 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 they operate differently, etc. Then in those circumstances, you'd say it does not apply. So you'd be outside of IR35. Now, it's important to remember that when you're looking at IR35 status, um, you're never going to be looking at the person. So we're, we're never looking at the individual. We're never saying that a person is caught by the rules or a person is inside or outside of IR35. It's always going to be the engagement that that, that, that person is on. Um, so you look at IR35 on a contract by contract basis because it's absolutely possible that a uh, worker could have maybe two or three contracts running at any one time, perhaps with the same client or different end clients. And those contracts may differ in status. So you can have one or two contracts inside of IR35, or at the same time having a contract that is outside of IR35 with the same or a different end client. So really, really important that when you are thinking about status, you're always thinking about the engagement or the, the actual contract that that, that worker's on rather than the person themselves. Uh, next slide, please, Ollie. So when companies such as Kingsbridge, who um, you know, have this expertise in IR35 in, in actually looking at employment status, um, are, are looking at the IR35 status of a worker or a group of workers, it's important to remember that case law will always establish how that employment status is going to be actually looked at um, and, and, and what the conclusion is that you draw from a series of tests that, that case law gives. Now, the most important case um, is the case of ready mixed concrete. Now, by all means, I, I don't encourage you to go away and start reading a ton of case law. Um, but if there was one that I'd recommend that you know is essential reading for looking at anything really in respect of IR35 status, it would be the ready mixed concrete case because the the case itself gives us what we term today as the trinity of status tests or the the three most important tests um, that you apply to to just about anything in respect of employment status. And this case is still used to um, you know actually defend really any kind of IR35 inquiry, um, you know, still to this day. It's quite unique 
because the case itself has nothing to do with IR35 and actually predates it. So it, it, it comes from uh, the kind of late 1960s. Um, but those three status tests that it gives us come in the form of control, uh, personal service, which includes the right to provide a substitute, and the test of mutuality of obligation. Now, those are your three um, that are the most important. They're the three that you know, as an end client in the supply chain, um, you need to focus on the most. If, if you have those three things um, all in the green, so to speak, you know, all positively in favor of the contractor, um, you can't really go too far wrong. Um, so those are the three main tests that we apply when we're, when we're looking at I-35 status. Although obviously those are the most important, uh, there are also a wide ranging um, set of a kind of more minor status tests. So th things that necessarily aren't as important, but on their own, if you have enough of them, uh, they will make up a, a kind of fairly large chunk of, of, of what it is that we're looking at. Now there's a, there's a whole range of different um, tests that we apply here within this kind of minor status test category. Um, but just to cover off a few of the more important uh, aspects of those minor status tests, um, I've listed three here. One being uh, financial risk. So looking at whether or not the contractor and their personal service company uh, is exposed to a genuine financial risk. Um, obviously, you know, if you are an employee, generally speaking, when you you know, take on a new role or you start working for, for a new hirer, um, you, you're not really exposed to any real financial risk, whereas a, a contractor is. Uh, we're looking also at the provision of own equipment. Uh, again, very, very important that the, the worker really should be providing their own equipment unless it's reasonable to assume that the end client would provide it for them. Uh, you know, a, a fairly straightforward example of that would be um, if you had an IT contractor that was contracting with a bank, it would not be reasonable for that person to just stroll up to the bank today, plug their laptop in and start extracting information from, from the bank. Instead, you would expect the bank to provide uh, a laptop or, 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 or kind of piece of equipment that that, that worker might use. And the um, final of the uh, more minor status tests that I'm going to mention here is integration. Uh, now, this is also very, very important because this, this really is, you know, looking at whether or not you have a clear uh, different set of rules for employees and whether there is a clear distinction between how employees and contractors operate. So it should be fairly straightforward in principle, but it, it, it can be somewhat difficult to apply in making sure that those two avenues of, 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 of workers are treated differently and don't enjoy the same benefits within that same end client. So to kind of summarize this then, um, Yes, the, 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 the major status tests are the most important, um, but do not underestimate the minor status tests because when you sort of step back and you look at that you know, whole engagement, um, those minor kind of tests that, 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 that you know, naturally we would apply to someone's engagement can make up that, that bigger image of kind of what's going on in the actual day-to-day. -day. So do, do make sure that obviously both of those two things um, are considered in whatever your processes are for looking at status. Uh, next slide, please, Ollie. So before April then, so basically right now in the private sector, what is the current rule set? You know, who's looking at status? You know, what, why, why is it changing basically? So um, currently uh, the rule set for I-35 comes from uh, chapter eight, part two of the ITEPA. Uh, and currently right now in the private sector, it's the responsibility of the contractor themselves to decide their, their own um, uh, different status for, for, for each contract. So if a contractor enters into three or four contracts each year, that contractor and their limited company has the responsibility of looking at each single um, each contract 
and deciding whether or not that contract is inside or outside of IR35. To um, emphasize this, what we've done on the right-hand side there is just create this um, kind of typical supply chain flow, I guess you'd call it, where you've got your end user client at the very top of the chain. You've then got the agency beneath that. You've then got the personal service company, which we'll assume is the limited company of the contractor. And then you've got the worker themselves at the very bottom of the chain. So currently it's that PSC, it's that contractor's limited company um, who in that chain needs to look at status. Now, importantly, the contractor and their limited company will also carry the tax liability. So if the contractor um, makes uh, a call on status, if, if the contractor decides that they're outside of IR35, if for whatever reason HMRC then challenge that and HMRC decide that that status is, is, is incorrect, it's the contractor's personal service company that will carry that liability. Typically speaking, a contractor, when they're looking at their own status, would go through a number of steps to ensure that they get their status right. And the starting point is uh, looking at two things. The contract that they have, so the actual written terms, uh, very important that you make sure that the written terms are compliant. But then the second half of that is the working practices. So making sure the actual day-to-day -day working reality of that person's engagement actually is compliant as well. And typically speaking, a contractor would, would go to an I-35 expert company such as Kingsbridge, where we can go through and review those, those two parts of a contractor's engagement. Now, really, really important that those two parts are both uh, a honest reflection of each other um, and are also not a sham. So you can't necessarily dress a contract up to look absolutely bulletproof on paper, but then in the working reality, if the working practices are terrible and are simply no different that of an employee, um, well, that won't really suffice because HMRC will see straight through that. They'll see straight through the contract and they'll simply term that contract as a sham uh, or a or a sham contract uh, and they'll disregard it completely and start to look at the engagement just you know purely based on those working practices which will obviously not be in the contractor's favor so you need to make sure that both of those two things are an honest reflection of each other and that they're also compliant equally um, you know don't, don't just throw something in the contract if, if in the reality that's not how it actually is uh, next slide please Ollie. So after April, then, um, I guess, you know, this is where we're, we're talking about the reason that we're all talking about IR35 in, in, in this much figure. Um, well, as of April this year, um, there will be new uh, changes to the legislation that, that will introduce, um, you know, basically just, just simply transferring that, that job of looking at status away from the contractor's limited company. And instead, that responsibility will now rest with the end user client. As long as that end user client is a medium or large size business. Um, so on the right hand side, you'll be able to see again what that typical supply chain looks like now. Very top of the chain, you've got your end user client. Beneath that, you've then got the recruitment agency. Beneath that, you've then got the uh, personal service company and then the worker at the very bottom of the chain. So these changes effectively just introduce uh, a, a, a transfer of that responsibility. And now it's gonna be that end user client at the very top of the chain who is gonna be the party in the chain looking at status. So that end user client now has to, has to look at and determine whether or not a person's engagement is inside or outside of IR35. Now these changes do not affect um, those end clients who are gonna be classified as a small company. Uh, we'll cover that off in a bit more detail uh, on a slide to come, but um, if your end client business is a small company, um, then these changes will not affect them. And instead, the rules that we've just covered on the previous slide will, 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 will 
be operating in that engagement. So the contractor looks at their own status. Um, but really important that what this does do is introduce a, um, a different party in the chain to carry that, that tax liability. And that will be the fee payer. So where you have an agency in the chain, such as the one on the right hand side, it will be that fee payers um, job in the middle of actually making those tax um, uh, payments to HMRC. Uh, but it will also be that fee payer that carries the tax liability if that status is incorrect. Uh, now, this can be a difficult concept to, to kind of get your head around in some instances because you naturally assume responsibility with liability. Um, but that's not the case. You've got one party in the chain responsible for status. And if there is an agency in the chain, the agency who's closest to the worker is going to be the party responsible for the tax liability. The way that I35 is actually assessed is not changing. So that, that's really important to, to kind of first of all cover off. There's nothing changing about the way that we look at status. It's still the same principles that we've covered off. Um, so all of that is still the same. All that's changing here is just a different party is going to be looking at it and a different party, potentially if there is an agency in the chain, will be um, taking on that tax liability. But what this change does do is introduce a number of um, kind of barriers or, or, or hurdles uh, that the end client must overcome. And I've listed a couple of these off at the bottom here and we'll go through them. Um, the first of which is often the most difficult, um, and, and that is the end client must make a decision about I-35 status. Um, Again, this can be the, the most difficult part of this process for an end client because it, it's not necessarily expected that an end client who perhaps has never dealt with I-35 um, is, is suddenly going to have to understand complex areas of, of, of employment status, which you know, is by no small, small feat a, a, an easy topic. It's something that takes years to, to, to actually develop and, and learn those, those principles that, that effectively you apply to the person's engagement. The next kind of barrier in, in this process is, you know, whilst they're making that decision about status, the end client must take reasonable care when doing so. Uh, now, this is a relatively subjective principle, uh, but HMRC have been um, quite good that they've issued guidance uh, within the employment status manual um, that, that basically gives you an indication as to what they believe reasonable care is and is not. Um, and if there is another piece in here that I would absolutely encourage you to read, it would be that piece of guidance. Um, it's found within ESM 10014. If you Google that, I guarantee you it, it will come up. It's about a five minute read. And, but what that will give you is an indication as to what HMRC are actually expecting of you in this process. The next burden here is that the end client now has to pass that decision about status down the supply chain via a status determination statement or an SDS as it's going to be known. Now, again, you can see on the right hand side, that SDS will come right from the very top all the way down to the bottom of the chain, touching base at every single point of contact. And that's 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 fundamentally what, what the client is, is, is doing this for. It's for that SDS and it's so that SDS can be passed down the chain all the way to the worker. And finally, the client must also react to challenges of IR35 status. So if the worker or indeed the recruitment agency disagree with status, if they decide, well, actually, no, we 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 don't agree with what the end client's saying here, um, then you've got the right to challenge that. And the end client has the obligation to acknowledge it, um, deal with it, and then actually respond to it, which we'll cover off on the um, next slide. Um, so let's go to that next slide, please, Ollie, if we can. Perfect. Um, so this is just to cover off really a few of those considerations that we've just been through. So the first of which is that small company exemption criteria. Now, the, um, the actual criteria here is going to be based upon the Companies Act, um, more specifically, Section 382 of the Companies Act. And as long as you do not surpass any two of these three criteria, 
um, then you'll be classified as a small end client. If you exceed any two of these three, then you'll be classified as a medium or large size company and you'll have to start applying these new rules that are coming in on April the, the 6th. Um, so those three criteria are an annual turnover of no more than 10.2 uh, million, a balance sheet total of not more than 5.1 million and no more than 50 employees. So if you exceed any two of those three, you'll be classified as a medium or large size business and have to start applying these rules coming in. Now, what that did create um, is a number of clients, uh, certainly last year, uh, tried to effectively remain silent on their, their size. Because if the, um, if the contractor just assumed that they were small, the contractor would still be the party responsible for status, et cetera. Um, so that created uncertainty in the entire supply chain. So what HMRC did was introduce Section 60H of the new rules that um, that now allows for uh, contractors or agencies to ask the end client what their size is. And the end client now must respond with the size of their business uh, and tell the supply chain exactly who is going to be looking at status. Um, so if the contractor writes to the end client and says, you know, what's your company size? Are you looking at status or am I? The client must respond uh, to, to that, that, um, that notice, giving the size of their company. And the end client must must do that within 45 days of receiving uh, that letter or, or that question from either the agency or the end client. Um, now, reasonable care, again, we'll, we'll cover that off in uh, just a moment, but I would just absolutely reiterate the fact that, you know, I would encourage you to read this. It really does give you an insight into what HMRC are actually expecting of the entire supply chain here. So we'll, we'll cover that in just a moment. And the final one here is just the burden to react to challenges. So actually reacting to um, challenges of status from, from workers. Now, the legislation um, needs now at, at bare minimum, the, the end client to take on that dispute, deal with it, and then respond to the worker within 45 days. Um, if the client is not doing that, if they're not responding within those, those 45 days, then that tax liability, that fee payers role, will rest with the end client. So the, the, the tax liability will effectively transfer away from the fee payer, if there is one in the chain, onto the end client. Um, so what you should sort of get here is that there is actually a bit of an incentive that if the client gets this right, and there's an agency in the chain, they're transferring that responsibility to a different party and, and they're, they're, they're transferring the tax liability onto a different party in the chain. Uh, next slide, please, Ollie. Um, so what we'll cover off just very quickly then is I'll just run through a, a, a few bits of information from the um, from the uh, actual guidance here that, that, that HMRC have, have published around reasonable care. And the first thing to note is that um, what, what HMRC tell us is that they expect a higher degree of reasonable care to be taken the bigger your organisation is. So if you are an end client with a um, large multinational business with loads of resource to kind of pour into this, then they expect you to take a higher um, element or, or, or kind of higher um, piece of reasonable care than maybe a smaller end client with less resource to pour into this. Um, so that's the first thing to, to, to really highlight, you know, make sure that you're honest with yourself and, 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 and set the, the kind of highest standard that you can right from the word go. HMRC do go on to give a um, quite a 
full list really of uh, what they classify as good or bad behavior uh, but just to cover off a few of the um, good behaviors um, they're saying that obviously accurately applying and keeping record of employment status principles seeking the advice of someone qualified um, having someone with a good understanding of the work to be undertaken actually involved in the process of looking at status um, you know all these things amount to good behaviors to 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 good practices um, and of course if there are any material changes to any of the workers terms and conditions or the work practices then the end client must make a new um, new call on status they must reassess status so all of this is obviously pointing us to that direction that yes we're we're taking reasonable care and we're doing everything properly uh, next slide please Ollie. And just to very quickly run through a few of the elements here that HMRC indicate are bad behaviours. Um, so if you as an end client are going to simply just look at your entire workforce and say that they are all caught by the rules or that they're all inside of IR35, um, then that is that is effectively not good enough. You know, you are not taking reasonable care doing that. If you fail to reconsider any status where there have been changes in, in, in circumstances, um, again, that is a bad behaviour in, in their eyes. If you have any absence of any kind of proper support or training within your business or simply don't have the knowledge needed to to run through this process if you fail to take account of any relevant evidence um, you know even if the, the the people that are tasked with doing this don't don't have the knowledge around either the um, actual working practices of the worker or ir35 you know all the, all these things amount to you not taking reasonable care so it's really really important that you get this right and again i i'll emphasize it again um, i would definitely you know, encourage you to, to take a read of the employment status manual guidance there around reasonable care. Uh, next slide, please, Ollie. So what Kingsbridge have done is really just try and identify five simple steps that really any client um, or indeed any supply chain can, can implement to get this right. Um, and just to fly through those very quickly, um, number one, you know, be, be honest with yourself about your own knowledge on IR35. You know, consider training if you feel that you need it. It's important that you understand this to, to obviously then get it right moving forward. Um, decide on the most suitable IR35 assessment tool. So, um, you know, there are loads of different tools out there, including the HMRC CES tool. Um, there's, there's the likes of our own tool here at Kingsbridge, et cetera. You know, make sure that whatever it is that you're using to, to get status, that you're comfortable with it, you're comfortable with the people behind it, and you're comfortable with the actual result that it's producing. You know, that, that's the most important thing. Be comfortable with it. Ensure that you are happy with it. Uh, number three is removing your tax liability. Um, so this may be in the form of perhaps having a insurance policy, um, you know, somewhere in that chain that's going to protect you in the, um, uh, you know, different circumstance that you either have a challenge of status or indeed that you've got status wrong. Have something there that will obviously protect you. Um, number four is provide relevant business insurances for those contractors or ask those contractors to provide that. Um, insurances is actually a, a, a indicator that that contractor is operating a genuine business. Um, obviously, no employee really is going to carry their own PI, PL, EL insurances, whereas a, a contractor should. And number five on here is annual reviews. So just making sure this isn't something that you're doing once, but actually I-35 is something that you're going to have to consider uh, for as long as you engage contractors. So, you know, get, get used to dealing with it, ensure that you have a process in place to kind of regularly check status. Um, and by, by doing that, you're, you're giving yourself the best opportunity to, to get this right, not just now, but also going forward as well. Uh, next slide, please, Ollie. Um, right, I'm going to pass it over to um, to my colleague Ollie then. Lovely. 
thank you very much, Ryan. Um, I can't see my screen because I'm sharing my screen, so hopefully you can hear me. Um, but what I'm going to be running through um, for you know four or five minutes is just how we we partner with Sphere on their IR35 solution, um, and that covers both a method in which um, they can use with their clients to determine status and also an insurance policy that we offer off the back of those determinations to indemnify the supply chain. So not going to go into a huge amount of detail, um, but what I will firstly cover off is, first of all, the, the IR35 tool um, that Sphere uh, have access to and are using to assess the status of their contractors for their own clients. So what is it? How does it work in reality? And, and sort of what responsibilities do you have as an end client um, when using this platform? So what it is, is an IR35 status determination tool. You have a progress tab where both parties, uh, the recruitment agency and the end client in the chain can keep track on, of progress uh, and who and, and where um, you're waiting on in order to complete the determination. The end client themselves will, will have a very similar login and access to the portal in order to sort of navigate between Sphere and their clients um, to get sign off on, on all determinations. And then at the bottom here, really key is the tool allows you to run role-based assessments, which can give you an indicative inside or outside determination, um, maybe at a job brief or you know, before you, you, you have the right contractor, this is a really handy tool to then, you know, make sure you're going to find the right candidate with a relevant idea of whether it's going to be inside or outside IR35. And then finally, the tool itself is, is automated. Um, so, you know, what this is a aims to do is really pick apart and, and establish those obviously inside and obviously outside IR35 assignments. Now, in the event where you've got something in that sort of borderline region, what would happen there is Kingsbridge would automatically manually review that with um, help from our R35 team. So Ryan would, would be sort of tasked with reviewing along with, with the rest of our R35 team and coming back and providing guidance around how um, Sphere and, and their client in that particular case can perhaps make some, some changes to working practices and, and the contract in, in place in order to reflect um, an outside IR35 engagement. Um, the second half of this is, is Kingsbridge also have an insurance policy um, that once um, an outside determination has been provided by the tool, we are then able to offer the contract to the ability to take out a IR35 insurance called IR35 Protect. Um, it's underwritten and backed by Zurich. So, you know, really key for us to sort of stress how important it is um, to have a household reputable name um, behind this policy. And most importantly, um, for, for the supply chain um, that carries the risk is that policy that is, is held by the contractor covers everyone in the chain. So whoever HMRC deemed the liable party, that insurance would cover. So a bit of detail around that. The insurance is £100,000 of, of tax liability and a separate pot of £100,000 of legal defence costs. So what that does is it basically allows for the tax owed to be covered by the £100,000 of tax liability and then any 
legal defence costs that are incurred would be covered by that separate pot of £100,000. Um, there's a couple of other points there around pricing um, and the, the, you know, the extended reporting period of four years that um, uh, I've, I've noted down. But if there are any questions around the insurance, sort of at the end, we, we can pick up on that. And then finally, how can, you know, how can we help you, how can Sphere sort of add value to, to you as a business? And ultimately, there's a few key points that the, the tool and the solution offers. Ultimately, it's ongoing access to the best talent, to those contractors who will only accept outside IR35 roles and the tool's ability to, to continue to assess those uh, and place those contractors. Being able to run this these assessments and, and run through and have an IR35 process that doesn't disrupt any projects or any potential hires that, that you may desire. The next two points sort of go hand in hand, but you can ensure through, through the determination process and through IR35 insurance that one, you, you have a compliant workforce with regards to how you're assessing status, but two, through relevant insurances that you can remove your tax liability. And then finally, save on unnecessary costs. Um, putting an, an IR35 process, a strategy and an assessing status can become very costly. Um, and ultimately, Sphere have now got access to use the, the tool um, and to, to help their own clients through that process. Um, so really good value add that they can do that for you, sort of manage that process. Um, and finally, we are going to open up the floor to a bit of a, a Q&A. Um, I'm sure there's, there's different questions that have cropped up for, for, for people. So, Amy, I think I'm going to pass over to you so you can manage the questions and sort of divert them in our direction. Yeah, perfect. And we've had some really good ones, actually. And just a reminder that um, if we haven't managed to answer any questions or you want to have a more detailed conversation, you can reach out to Ben or anyone on the contract team. Um, so the first one is, if the freelancer has another job, how does this affect this, particularly if they are a permanent employee at another company, but wish to still work a freelancer role outside of that company? Um, sure, yeah. I mean, so fundamentally then what, what the question is, is if a, a freelancer has a full-time job, um, can they work contract um, with a different end client? Well, um, yes, absolutely. You know, if, if they've got the, the time to manage that, if they've got the, the, the ability and there's, there's nothing kind of, I guess, contractually that would um, stop the contractor doing that, then yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, there's certainly nothing from an I-35 perspective that, that, that you would say um, screams any kind of red flags, um, as long as they're not working as an employee with that client and as a freelancer with that same client doing pretty much exactly the same thing. You know, what you would want ideally is if that freelancer was working with a different um, end client doing either a similar or different role. Um, but, you know, those, those, those two avenues of income, those, those two ways that that contractor operates must be different. You know, you, you can't simply operate as an employee for, for multiple different end, end users um, and, and have different vehicles for each. You know, you've, You've got to be fairly honest with yourself and, and make sure that um, however it is that you're operating, if it's via the, the kind of self-employed route, then you are acting, you are um, operating as, as though you are genuinely self-employed. Um, so this, it's, it's not necessarily going to have a huge impact from an I-35 perspective, um, as long as you're, you're you know, keeping that relationship um, as is. 
Mm. And I, I remember this question coming through and I think the client was concerned that they would have responsibility for that. Is, but it's the onus is just on the contractor in this example. Um, well, it's on kind of both parties, you know, what, what this is doing, so what this change is doing is effectively placing more onus on the end client to, to get this right. So um, the end client who that contractor is uh, actually freelancing to, um, they'll have to, you know, be, be the party responsible for status, they'll have to work with the contractor to ensure that that, that, that engagement's compliant. Um, and, you know, from a, from a kind of, um, I guess, best case scenario point of view, if either of those two parties were to say, look, actually, we feel that this engagement's moving slightly towards being a, a um, employee or it's, or it's moving away from what it was when it started, um, then, then just be honest with yourselves. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to be the end of the world if you, you and your client say, hang on, you know, this is getting too much like an employee now. We need to um, maybe have a chat and, and, and just change how I operate um, because that is honestly the, the best way in dealing with this. If there's anything that, that crops up that you feel, yes, actually, this is screaming red flags at me, um, then, you know, have that conversation, make those changes and, and you should be fine from an I-35 perspective. Okay, perfect. Um, next question was, how can we prove we are a small business? Do we need to provide evidence to the recruitment agency? Um, so in terms of evidence, you, you don't need to start producing um, kind of, you know, end of year accounts or anything like that. Um, what you will need to do is, is, is be honest. You know, um, if the, the agency in the chain or the worker makes that request and says, you know, we need to know the size of your business because we need to know which party in the chain is going to be looking at status. Are you a small company? So therefore, it'd be the contractor looking at it or are you medium or large, therefore it's going to be you looking at it. Um, and what HMRC have done in their guidance, I will try and pick my brain to remember which piece is. I think it's within ESM 10011A and 11B. Um, I can find you some links and I'm sure we can, we can send those out um, afterwards. But what they do is provide a, 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 a template uh, that you can use. So that, that template is relatively straightforward. It will just confirm your own company size either way and um, quite clearly indicate under what rules um, are, are, are going to apply. So there's no need for you to necessarily go and evidence anything as such, but um, there is a, a pretty clear template that you can use that, that HMRC have, um, where you can just indicate to whoever it is in the chain, uh, you know, which party is going to be looking at status. Okay, great. Um, indemnity insurance, is this the right way to go about approaching IR35? Um, well, uh, for me, yes, um, because, you know, you've got this, this risk, you, you have a tax liability in the chain. And because um, IR35 is not black and white, it isn't something that's, you know, is or is not what it comes down to is everybody's opinion. Um, HMRC will have their own opinion on status. The rest of the industry have their own. Um, and it, it, it will come down to whether your opinion is stronger than that of the, the inspector at, at HMRC. Now, obviously that opinion can be challenged. There's, there's, there's nothing to say that it, that it can't. Um, but the only opinion that matters is that of the first tier tax tribunal and courts that go above that point. Um, so as a belt and braces, um, I would certainly encourage the use of insurance um, somewhere in the chain in, in some way, shape or form, because it will just, you know, give everybody that, that kind of, um, I guess, peace of mind. It, it will give them a, a bit more sense of security and that if they're going to start looking at complicated employment status matters, um, then at least they've got something there in the unlikely event that whoever's doing it 
got that wrong um and 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 that's fundamentally what it comes down to you know are you protected are you actually going to be um you know making sure that there's something in the background in the unlikely event that you get this wrong yeah okay perfect and um, why isn't the cest tool most appropriate um i thought this one would come up um it, it comes up just about all the time um how long have you got is, is the honest answer. I can, I can talk to you for hours about this one. But um, so fundamentally, then, if, if we look at the CES tool, um, there are a number of kind of, I guess, striking differences between what CES and HMRC do compared to the courts, everybody else, et cetera, that's, that's involved with status. Um, the first of which is that the, 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 the CES tool does not properly consider um, the kind of full trinity of status tests that, that we apply. So um, whilst HMRC's CES tool is improving and it's getting better from where it was, it doesn't adequately consider the test of mutuality of obligation. Um, HMRC will only apply that test to uh, make the assumption that a contract exists at all. Beyond that, they don't really go much deeper. Um, and, and that also shows in, in, in their own inquiries in the courts where you know, they are heavily criticized on this. Um, and certainly the rest of the private sector um, who are looking at status, you know, companies similar to Kingsbridge, um, we all agree um, that you need to ask more um, around the testament of obligation than what the HMRC CES tool does. And for that reason, on its own, it's still not fit for purpose. It's still not aligned with what the rest of the industry thinks. Beyond that, uh, you've also got to look at um, the actual data that it produces. So if you take um, November uh, 19 to November of uh, sort of last year, um, HMRC have published data on how much it was used. So it, it was used all in all about a million times in that period, um, of which approximately 188,000 times that it was used, it did not produce an outcome. Um, so you're potentially looking there. If if you're using the 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 um, the the government's tool, if you're if you're going through those assessments on your own, you potentially have 20% of your workforce without an outcome. Um, so you are then left to either guess at, at, at what status is, or start looking at very complex, again, very very deep. Um, uh, tests and principles around employment status that quite frankly any kind of normal end client is not expected to to have that much knowledge on um, whereas private sector companies again such as the likes of, of, of Kingsbridge we can provide an outcome a hundred percent of the time and and so can a number of other providers um, so that that's really why for me it isn't quite fit for purpose yet um, it's getting better, but you know, currently in its current guise, it's 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 going to be less favourable to end clients and indeed any supply chain. I think anywhere in the UK. Okay, fine. So we can just keep people posted as and when that perhaps does become a more appropriate tool. But for the time being, try to avoid it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also you know you've got to look as well. You know, it's 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 still not doing what it fundamentally needs to do. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at HMRC's own success rate in the courts, it, it's extremely low. Um, you know, you, you're talking roughly kind of 17% um, rate of success in actually opening up inquiries and, and then winning those inquiries. Um, and, and the, the CES tool is a direct um, correlation of, of what HMRC are wanting to, to say. So until it's, it's better, until it's improved, I certainly wouldn't recommend using it on its own. Um, it's fine to use, but I'd certainly use something else in the background to obviously then actually support that um, but you're also not going to have any insurer that, 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 that I'm aware of anywhere in the British Isles that will 
cover you um, if a CEST report is is conducted and it's wrong. Um, I, I'm still not aware of it, anybody that, that will indemnify um, any outcome from CEST. Okay, great, thank you. Um, if a contractor is working from home using their own equipment, whereas the majority of their current employees work from the office, use company equipment and are client facing, is this likely to tip the scale in favour of outside IR35 working? And how does using a company email address and job title affect this? Um, so a contractor working from home, using their own equipment, their own um, stationery, et cetera, is certainly a positive indicator uh, in favour of the contractor. Um, but one thing to probably cover off here is that there's no there's no one single test or or question um, that would say yes, you know, you're absolutely fine from an IT5 um, point of view because of X. It's always going to be made up of that bigger picture. So looking at everything in in tandem with each other, and then kind of you you have all the facts in front of you. You you sort of step back from that and you go right on on balance. Is this person operating as a genuine employee, or are they operating as someone who is genuinely self-employed? Um, but those things that you've just mentioned there are all positive. Mm -hmm. They're all positive in the contractor's favor. Um, so when you're uh, looking at anything to do with status, anything that gives that contractor their own independence, their own control, um, you know, their own kind of autonomy over how they work, they are all positive indicators in the contractor's favor. So I'll, yes, absolutely encourage those. Um, when you're looking at things like company email addresses and and and, and sort of job titles, um, e emails are a bit of an odd one because it's kind of expected that a contractor in some instances or some industries may have a email address with that end client. Uh, however, just make sure that where they have got them, they are clearly identified as a consultant or external consultant or you know something that's 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 clear and visible that would distinguish them away from being a normal employee. Okay, great. Um, and outside of that, when looking at accepting a contract and working practices, what terms, practices should be avoided to remain outside of IR35? I feel like that kind of leads on quite well from what you were just saying. Um, yeah, so generally speaking, you know, what you're looking for in the contract is um, clauses that would indicate the contractor has a genuine right to control how they're working, when they're working, what it is they're doing or or kind of how they're getting from A to B, so to speak. Um, we're going to be looking for um, clauses around personal service. So making sure that the contractor has a genuine right of substitution, making sure that that right in itself is not fettered by any um, kind of unnecessary checks that that the end client would, would, would like to carry out. Um, and then also looking at tests of, um, you know, looking at whether that contractor has a right to accept any work that's being provided to them. So, you know, making sure that when that project ends, so having a, a fixed start date, fixed end date, and making sure that if that project ends anytime in between that, that the contract is, you know, going to finish that engagement. They can't just simply be shifted from kind of task to task from, from one project to another. Um, and then the way that you marry that up with the working practices is just simply by ensuring that what's in that contract all those clauses that you've actually implemented in respect of IR35 do actually then happen in the reality. So if you say in the contract that the contractor has a genuine right of substitution, that they can provide a substitute at, at short notice if they want, um, then just make sure that in, in the actual working reality that does happen, albeit the right of substitutions 
very rarely exercised, um, but it's important that you accept that that can happen. Um, if you're not accepting that can happen, then it, you know, why is it in the contract? You know, remove it if that's not the reality. Okay, great. How often do we need to run SDSs on a roll? Do we only run one at the beginning of the contract that will cover the duration, or do we need to run them during the contract also? Um, so you've you've absolutely definitely got to run that SDS. You've got to run the 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 actual test on status at the beginning of the engagement. Um, mm -hmm. So you've 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 got to do that. You've got to issue the SDS throughout the entire chain. Um, beyond that, there is no um, kind of set time that you've got to do it. You know, there's no sort of um, rule that says you've you've got to do it every three months or, or or kind of six months, but you have got to do it if there are any material changes in that engagement whatsoever. Um, so there's there's again no definition of what a material change is. So it is largely going to be wide open to interpretation. Um, but for for me, if any of our clients asked, you know, when should we do that? I would be encouraging them to do it at any point that you have any sort of contract extension, any kind of change in working practices, changing the way that the contracts are um, going to operate. That's, you know, day rate, project, whatever it is. If there's any material changes like that, just run that assessment again. Um, because what you're trying to do is close all those doors that HMRC may have to ask more questions. You know, you're, you're looking to satisfy that, that curiosity right from the word go. And if you leave anything open to interpretation, like, well, hang on, there was a, there was a change in, in, in the day rate here and you didn't run a new assessment, um, you know, by, by, by just doing all this in the first place, you know, you, you close off that, that avenue for those questions. Mm -hmm. Okay, brilliant. And how would a traditional umbrella company work in this instance? Can we revert our contractors to engage via an umbrella company? Are we still then liable as the end user or does the determination sit with the umbrella company who would be paying the salary and tax deductions? Um, well, if you have an umbrella company involved, um, you know, there's nothing really that's I-35 relevant because it, it, it doesn't apply to engagements where you have a contractor operating via a, a company that's an umbrella company. Um, an umbrella company is effectively paying full PAYE anyway. Um, so there's, there's, there's no need to, to actually apply these rules. Um, these rules will only uh, you know, come into play if you're engaging a, a contractor via a limited company or a partnership. Um, so if, if you're engaging that, that personal service company, that's when the rules apply. If somebody's going via an um, umbrella company, there is, there is no status to assess because they're effectively that, you know, they're an employee of the umbrella company. Okay, great. Um, I'm just trying to see, I don't think we have any more. We had a couple about um, the media agencies and changes to their working practices. Um, I just had a little chat with the contract guys and they recommended that person reach out to them directly um, to chat through this. Is there any final questions to put in the chat? If not, I think we're good to go. Or any final things you guys want to say? Um, I guess from from me, you know, the, the main thing is just just don't be don't be overwhelmed by the amount of information that I35 brings with it. You know, don't don't think that this is a you know huge, big, wild beast that that is you know really difficult to to overcome. These changes are manageable. They are absolutely not the end of contracting. Um, and you know, just you know, the the main thing is just just have a good process in place. As as long as you've got a good process from the top of the chain all the way to the bottom, you can't really go wrong. 
Um, you know, and if if there is any kind of uh, gap in knowledge, if there's a gap in information, if, if you just feel like you need your your hand, you know, holding through this process, um, th then there are people like myself and our team here at Kingsbridge, um, you know, certainly working with you guys as well, you know, that that that, that those that those clients can reach out to, um, mm -hmm. and you know, we're more than happy to to help guide and 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 hold that hand where it's needed. Um, that that's the the real main message I think from from me. Just you know, don't don't be put off by it. Deal with it head on. Manage it correctly, and not not a lot will go wrong um, if you're on the straight and narrow. A big thank you to Kingsbridge for joining us. If you have any questions about IR35, please don't hesitate to reach out to our contract team directly. See you next week for another episode of Life in Digital.